Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. How are you? I'm good. How are you this week? It was a holiday weekend. Yeah, so it was relaxing for me, but it wasn't so much for you, I understand. You were busy working. I work in a grocery store, so of course we were slammed. There's football started and Labor Day, so we were nonstop. You know, it wasn't that bad, though. It was just a whole lot of walking, really. But you still have had a chance to listen to our album this week, and so have I. Yes. I'm excited. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite albums from 1982, which is Shabu Shaba by NXS. You mentioned, Trey, that you have a correction from episode one regarding this album. Indeed, I do. So I was talking about having listened to this album in the summer of 82, but there's no way I could have because it came out, what, October of 82. So I've been struggling with myself all week and wondering, I'm hoping my memory's not going. So now I don't know. I'm like, did I, was it in the fall that these memories are coming from, the fall of 82? Did I, or did I actually not hear this record until summer of 83? I'm really leaning towards it being in the fall, and I'm just associating it with that summer. It has to be, because I, I can remember buying it, and my parents were handing me out money freely then, as my sister had just been born, like, you know, go buy a tape or something, and that's when I got it. So okay. I just wanted, wanted to throw that in there. So if people listen to that first episode and then hear this, they're not confused. See, now you're like me. Do you, like, obsess after an episode and think, oh, my gosh, did I get that? What was it? Was it October or was it November? And we, you and I are probably the only ones that even noticed that, you know? <laughs> well, I, you're the, you are the mistress of facts. So I know that you'll, you'll go, Hey. Ooh, the mistress of facts. I need to have that printed on a plaque on my office door. <laughs> I like it. People often, often comment on my, my knowledge of facts about these things too. So, you know, you get one wrong every now and again, what can you do? Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so you forgive yourself and you move on, right? <laughs> yeah, it just worried me a little. I, I felt like my mind was going, and I, I was getting upset. You know how you get yourself into those places. But let, yes. let's let's get into this fantastic album. Okay. So the band members there were six. They're from mm -hmm. Australia. So we have Michael Hutchins, the lead singer, his high school friend Andrew Ferris, who plays keyboards. Andrew's older brother, Tim Ferris, who's a guitarist. Andrew's younger brother, John Ferris, who is a drummer. And then there's Gary Gary Beers, who's a bass player. And yes, his name is actually Gary, G-A-R-R-Y, Gary, G-A-R-Y Beers. So it's like, I think it was a typo in a program at one point, but it kind of stuck. I was going to say, is, he, is there a story behind that one? 
I, if I remember correctly, it was a typo in a program. And for whatever reason, it's stuck. It just, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And then Kirk Pengilly, who started off as a rhythm guitarist and also plays saxophone. I love Kirk. I love I love seeing interviews with him. He just seems such a happy and cheery. And he's always got that huge smile on his face. So he's married to uh, surf champion yeah. Lane Beachley. Mm -hmm. And he's got his own vineyard. So many of these people have vineyards these days. Right. If we make a million dollars at this, I'm going to open a vineyard. and. Uh, okay, you can have <laughs> that. wearing smoking jackets. and. <laughs> All right. Shabu Shaba was NXS's third studio album. It was their first album after they left the deluxe label. They had left Deluxe. They weren't really happy with Deluxe. Deluxe really wasn't promoting them the way they felt they should. And they had cut a demo for the song, The One Thing. And based on the strength of that demo, they were signed to WEA Australia. And in North America, they were signed to Atlantic Records. Yep. The album was recorded at Mark Opitz's Rhinoceros Studios. Now, Mark Opitz is very notable Australian producer. Oh yeah. Well, you know, he worked well, he did this album. He did not work with NXS again until 1991. So is, it, it's, is it called Live Baby Live? Or do I have that backwards? <laughs> I I I get that's a good question. I, I've heard Live Baby Live. I've heard Live Baby Live. Mark Opitz had previously recorded ACDC mm -hmm. and another Australian a hard rock band called Cold Chisel. So he was really known for more of a rock and roll guitar kind of sound. Right. And I think he brought that to the band, you know, and, and I think this is the first album. I, I know I mentioned in episode one, this is the first album where I think it really starts to sound like an excess. But I mean, this is the first one where we really start to get the very hard driving rock and roll guitars over the funk beat that would become NXS's signature. Right. See, to me, this album, they, they were finding their sound on this record. It, it was it was so all over the place in a good way, but they, they were definitely reaching for something with this record. And I think they finally found that on their next album, The Swing, but they were, they you, you can hear them searching here. And I think Mark Opitz was definitely working with them and trying to help them get into that place that they were looking for with this record. Yeah, absolutely. This ended up being the album that broke them in the States. This was the first album that actually got them any kind of international acclaim and international fame. Rolling Stone Magazine's David Fricke gave the album three stars, saying it was both novel in approach and stirring in execution. Amid the current plague of identikit synth pop records, Shabu Shaba is certainly no ordinary song and dance. I'll go along with that. That's a pretty fair assumption of this record. You know, it's definitely not their strongest album, but it, it it's far from their worst, too. I would say this is in my top, maybe my top three NXS albums. Really? Three, maybe four. Let's add, throw that in there. What, what what are your top three NXS albums? Well, the, the top NXS album would have to be Full Moon Dirty Hearts. Really? Yes. And I think the second one would be Welcome to Wherever You Are. Oh, wow. That's, these are totally not what I was expecting you to say. Okay. Those are great albums. Don't get me wrong there. Okay. I think third for me would be X. And I think that's probably partly because X has a very special place in my heart. That was my high school senior year. 
And as we move on to like 1990, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about that. How about you? What are your top three NXS records then? Listen like these kick in X. Okay. All right. So that's kind of the trifecta. I think those are the ones that most American fans know. They just hit such a stride with those three albums. And they just, I mean, they were unstoppable. By 1988, they were unstoppable. Yes. And see, now you got me second guessing because now I don't have Listen Like Thieves in there. It's hard. You you put me on a spot there. I wasn't ready for that question. <laughs> you know, Listen Like Thieves is when they really just nailed it. They, they you know, they hit a home run with that one. The Sweet's good, but Listen Like Thieves, they just, they, they got everything together and just off they went. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the album title and then the album cover. I was hoping you were going to bring that up. And okay. Is that the name of the dog on the LP cover? What, Shabu Shaba? Yeah. No, actually, it's, it's an interesting story. So a lot of times when the band comes up with ideas for songs, maybe they don't have a lyric yet. So sometimes they'll use nonsense words, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And so for the song Spy of Love, they hadn't written the lyrics yet. And Tim Ferriss kind of came up with this Shabu Shaba kind of like lyric to go with it. Yeah. And even after they plugged in the actual words for it, for some reason, the band just really stuck with that name Shabu Shaba. So that they said it kind of captured the vibe of the album, whatever that means. But it's a, a complete nonsense word. I just always figured it was that dog's name. Okay. Is there a story behind the dog? You know, I don't know much <laughs> about it. I know, okay, so the cover of the album is a man wearing a mask. Right. And he's holding a whippet dog. That's mm -hmm. the, the breed of dog. The photo was by a, a gentleman named Grant Matthews. I understand that he came up with the idea for the cover with lead singer Michael Hutchins. There's a rumor that the picture may actually be Michael Hutchins, but nobody has either confirmed or denied that. I always thought it was a member of the band. You know, that was one of their dogs. The only time that that dog has ever come up is, is on this album cover. So I'm not sure where they got the dog from. But it was just like a weird random idea that uh, Michael and Grant Matthews came up with. So... Whether it is Michael or whether it isn't, I don't think it is personally. It doesn't look like his arms to me, but I'm sure that there's going to be some people out there that are going to disagree with me and they're going to write in to acpodcast at hotmail.com and tell me, <laughs> tell me why I'm wrong. So I, I, I would like to hear if someone knows out there, you know, the, the whole story, that would be cool to hear. Yeah, it definitely would be. We didn't talk about the inside cover. I've never seen the inside cover. I only had like a set. You've never seen the... Okay. All right. Hold on. I'm going to pull this up and I'm going to share it with you. All right. You remember in the early 80s, this was before they really started going over the top with the cassettes and the lyrics and all. So it would just be a little picture and nothing on the inside. Here we go. Yeah. Here we go. All right. Hold on a sec. This is it right here. Oh, I I've seen that picture. I had no idea it was from inside of Shabu Shabba, though. Yeah. So it is all six band members naked and they're all covered by, I guess, a sheet, it looks like. I wonder how they talked them into that. I'd have been like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. No. You know, it had to be Michael's idea. It had to be. This is the kind of thing that Michael comes up with. But yeah, I mean, I can't, you know, as a as a uh, 
woman who likes men. I remember seeing this and being like, whoa. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, especially when you consider that three of the guys are brothers, nobody wants to be naked with their two brothers, That's, right? I, I don't want to be around, naked around any, any other man. Not to, you know, sound like a hateful person, but I just, you know, I, I would not have been down for that. Okay, so before we get into the tracks, there's one other thing I wanted to note here. Three of the songs on this album, The One Thing, Soul Mistake, and To Look At You, were featured on the soundtrack for the 1984 film Reckless, starring Daryl Hannah and Aidan Quinn. Man, I haven't seen that in years. You know, I haven't either. And, and actually, two of the B-sides were in another movie called No Small Affair which starred Demi Moore, and it was actually John Cryer's first movie. I believe I've actually seen that one, too. I actually watched it for the first time last night. Is it any? Is it good? It's absolutely awful. <laughs> but I did appreciate the two NXS B-sides that were, uh, were in the soundtrack there. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. I think we should start listening to the album. So, Okay, the first track on Shabu Shaba is The One Thing. Actually, my intro to the band, there was a TV show called Radio 1990, and they played the video one night, and I liked it, and I ended up buying the cassette a week or two later. You know, something I've been wanting to ask you about regarding this era, there was, I don't know if it was Night Flight or Radio 1990 or even Nickelodeon, but somebody ran about a 20-minute bio on NXS right there. Had to have been fall of 82, could have been early 83, and I saw that too. And it just really got me into I was trying to find it all week, and I, I can't find any reference to it anywhere, nothing. Oh, no, that doesn't ring any bells to me. But again, if our listeners maybe know where that exists online, acpodcast at hotmail.com, let us know. Yep. Somebody help me out there. I would love to see that again. But anyways, this song just really caught my ear. You know, it's definitely got a new wave sound to it. That's what I was getting into at the time. Never heard of this, but I didn't even know how to pronounce her name. I was calling them Inks for several weeks. And I, I'm not sure how I, probably in that thing I was talking about, I watched is how I got corrected. And I was like, in excess. And it was, the name was puzzling to me. I, I couldn't figure that one out. So, yeah, this was the first song that I heard by them as well. It did get a lot of airplay on MTV. The one thing was the first single that the band released in America. It was written by Michael Hutchinson, Andrew Ferris. And 
I guess the band had sent a demo to Mark Opitz and the original was very different than what ended up being on the album. So Mark Opitz has written an autobiography and he says in that book, it had about three really quirky bridges in the middle of the song that just wrecked it. So he said once he pulled out those three little instrumental bridges, he said it sounded amazing at that point. The song is about having a girl who's beautiful and confident with lots of men after her. You've got a dozen men behind you. You've got the flowers on the floor. It's unusual. I mean, it's a love song, but it's an unusual love song. It's not like the traditional kind of, oh, I love you, my love. Well, the, that was one of the cool things about NXS is their songs tended to be lyrically very different than anything else that was around at the time, like we were saying about Duran Duran in our previous episode. You know, they weren't just sticking to the standard verse, chorus, verse type of thing with their music, and that's part of why I came to love them so much. The video. Yeah, okay, so the video. Remember my comment about NXS and their poor choices in clothing? Yes, yes. What is going on with the ladies in the video? You know, they're all... Australian soap opera stars, with the exception of... Okay, that kind of explains it, because they're, they're so over the top and done up. I, I thought maybe they were supposed to be prostitutes. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. No, so um, uh, Michael's girlfriend, Michelle Bennett, is one of the women that's in the video, but the others are all, all soap opera stars. And Michael's mother, Patricia, was a professional makeup artist. So... I, I guess it was like her connections as far as the soap opera stars, but also the makeup. I don't know that she did the makeup herself. She might have, but I, it was probably some of her industry connections that did it. The makeup is very over the top, but it's also pretty standard if you look at any other 80s music videos. Well, see, it was that's what I was thinking about. I was like, these, these, these don't look like your standard 80s video chicks. They look like they're, I was getting the impression they were supposed to be something. Okay. Well, some of the blush is, I think, a little bit of an unflattering shade where it's almost kind of bluish. Right, yeah. right. Again, that's why I was thinking they were supposed to be prostitutes. Oh, dear. They look <laughs> like bad 80s crime show prostitutes is what they look like. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, I just didn't know. I was like, what on earth? Hmm. What's going on here? Well, so the video is very much a Bacchanalian feast, isn't it? Yes. I thought that there were no utensils, but then a friend corrected me. And yes, I guess at the beginning, there are some utensils. But otherwise, it's just a bunch of people, you know, feasting. They're tearing apart the food with their hands and their teeth. They're feeding each other. The boys are eating out of some of the girls' hands. Right. And as the video progresses, it just kind of gets more and more animalistic, I guess. I mean, you get Gary climbing up on the table and ripping the the turkey carcass in half. I think it was the turkey. And you have cats crawling around on the table, which can't be terribly sanitary as much as I love cats. My cats uh, do that. So I can't, you know, I can't say anything <laughs> about that. So they're clothes. Who, who? They dress themselves. And, and you know, that hat that Michael wears. One of their girlfriends got in there and went, look, you know. Well, <laughs> Michael, Michael Hutchins always had a very unique sense of style. And so that black hat that he's wearing, that's actually his mother's hat. He borrowed it for the video shoot. Around the dinner, they're all wearing, I think they're wearing tuxedos. Uh -huh. There's, you know, it, it's funny that you should mention it is because um, Nick Egan 
he is a graphic designer who designed their covers for some of their later albums. Right. And he also directed some of their later videos. He had said that the first time he heard NXS, he assumed they were British, like he is. And I actually assumed they were British, too, because... I probably did. Sorry. That's okay. I assumed they were British because Kirk is wearing socks with Union Jacks on them. I didn't notice that. I just, everything that I was hearing at that point in time was from England. So, you know, yeah. I just figured they were from, I'm not sure when I actually found out they were from Australia, but, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, another thing I like about this video in particular is Michael has this subtle but enduring lisp. Does he? He does. It's adorable and it really is noticeable. When when he says the way you move soft and slippery, if you if you watch, you can you can kind of see that very, very subtle list there. And I think it's it's adorable, but it's also kind of disarming. I think it it, it puts people at ease and and uh, maybe maybe they shouldn't be. You know what I mean? Because he was a little bit of a, a little bit of a wild man, you know. You've clearly looked at that a lot harder than I ever have, but you were also a woman, like you noted earlier with the photo. NXS is definitely another band that they sure attracted the ladies, especially Michael. So, And, you know, lest anybody think that I am biased one way or another, I like both teams. All right. So there's no. going to be there's going to be some videos we're okay, going to be coming well, up. That's going to add an interesting mm. uh, but third dimension to things. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So just FYI for future episodes, there's going to be some women that I have absolute hots for as well. All righty. Jane Wideland from the Go-Go's. Oh, really? my God. Oh, that's my girl crush. Yes, absolutely. All right. So, hey, let's move on to the next track, shall we? All right. All right. The next track is written by Andrew Ferris. It's called To Look At You. song i think it's very sensual sounding it's got some very interesting synth sound effects and in places the sound effects almost remind me of a video game i know trey you've said in the past that uh certain synth songs for you remind you of the future mm -hmm. i'm curious what your opinion is of the synth on this one we mentioned the juno 8 synthesizer in the duran duran episode nick rhodes is one of the first people to get one of them along with andrew ferris and I think with this, he was probably experimenting around with that thing. 
you know, he the, the 82 was when that synthesizer just gotten out. So I feel like he brought it in the studio and was kind of like, look what I got, guys. It's interesting to me that they gave one of those to Andrew because at this point in my time, nobody had any idea who an excess was. So for him to have gotten one is pretty cool, pretty interesting. I, maybe we can find out more about that. Oh, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that because yeah. they didn't have the kind of international fame yet. Right. That, that Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran had. That's interesting. Yeah, but he, he was definitely fooling around with that thing, I think, and going, you know, check it out. Look what I can do with this thing. And I think Mark Opitz was, you know, let, let's roll with it. Let's, yeah. Let's see what you got in there. Yeah. And oh, we're going to see more of that in the next song as far as the experimentation. So forgive me for asking, because I think you've told me the answer already. Uh, you've seen the miniseries. Uh, in excess never tear us apart right yes, the australian I mean, miniseries absolutely love it i love it too and it's interesting because a lot of my australian friends don't really seem to care for it but i i think it's brilliantly cast especially luke arnold as michael hutchins he inhabits that role that is the best rock and roll i, I don't know what to call it dramatization they have ever made i mean they they, they hit it out of a park with that biopic it blew my yeah there you go biopic uh -huh. biopic or biopic i've heard it said both ways you know i i wasn't expecting much out of it when i when i first watched it it just completely blew me out of the water i was like wow that was fantastic and it's mostly accurate like if you read story to story which is the band's official biography there's a couple small things they change but it's mostly true to that uh, story to story. But the reason I mention it is because every time I hear this song, I think of the scene where Michael's performing this in front of the crowd. And up until this point, Michael Hutchins has been very shy, but he spies Michelle Bennett in the crowd. Yeah. He hadn't met her at this point. And all of a sudden, something takes him over and he starts just kind of acting in a very sensual kind of way with his dance moves yeah. and the women in the crowd are screaming and they're going crazy. And it's like the first time that I think he really discovered that kind of stage presence within himself. So now every time I hear this song, I, I mentally, I go right back to that scene and I just picture Luke Arnold up on the stage and all the women screaming. That's probably going to stick with me now, too, now that you've pointed that out. You're exactly right. Well, there is an official video for it. Uh, and I sent it to you. I sent you a few videos and I said, Trey, this is your homework. Did you watch it? <laughs> like I keep saying, in excess in their fashion choices. You know, fashion choices in this video. You know, you can, people out there listening, don't get me wrong. This is one of my favorite bands, definite top five, but good Lord. What, 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 the, what do you take issue with? Is it John's pink blazer jacket? You know, it, it just looks to me like they went to Kmart and just grabbed some stuff <laughs> off the rack and threw it on them. And I, you know. Oh boy. Did they have Kmart in Australia? Or yeah, I think so. Have, you know. I think so. I think they still do. I felt like they were going, why, why, who, who, why are they putting us in this stuff? Oh, boy. If you notice with the swing and on, they dressed a lot cooler. They were in leather jackets and tight black jeans and Doc Martens. I wonder if somebody did just go, you know what? Enough. We're not looking like this anymore. Or maybe they could finally afford it. Or that too. Yeah. Well, so 
The video for To Look At You is one of three videos that was filmed with director Scott Hicks for this album. And I'm under the impression they filmed all three on the same day. I don't know that that's a fact, but they were all filmed at roughly the same time at an airport in Adelaide. Now, originally the plan was they were going to travel to the desert north of the city to film the, the video for this and the other two that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. But bad weather forced them to change their plan. So they ended up shooting in an airplane hangar. Now, you can't really tell from this particular video. It's a little more noticeable in some of the other videos for this album. Oh, for sure. Now, there's the recurring theme of the Venetian blinds. And there's a woman who's uh, sitting in a makeup mirror getting ready. And you can kind of see the band members spying on her through the blinds, you know, to look at you. There's one point where you can see Michael's lips through the blinds and he's singing. And this is one of the few places where you can really see Michael's acne scars on his face. He actually had a very pockmarked complexion. Really? Yes. And if you look very closely, and I think he might be wearing a little bit of a hint of pink lipstick as well, but you can really kind of see the the acne scars there. And I wonder if maybe that's not one of the reasons that he was so self-conscious at first. You know? Or it would have to be. I would be if I had a condition like that. Well, I mean, you you take whatever hand life deals you. And I would say Michael took the hand life dealt him and he played it really well. For sure. Yeah. So then as the, the video kind of progresses, then things kind of flip. And now we have the woman looking through the blinds at the band members as they're getting dressed. So, you know, there's a shot, you know, one of the boys in their undies and you see John in a pink blazer and he's got his magenta socks on. And then Kirk writes Shabu Shuba on the mirror in lipstick. And I had heard a rumor. And now I, apparently this is not true, but I had heard a rumor for many years that the band had disowned this video because it really seemed to be going with kind of the new wave aesthetic and I think of all their videos, I think this is the one that is least like them. It does not feel like them. They're all so serious. You know, you see Andrew and you see Tim and they have this kind of really serious scowl on their faces and, and you know, writing on the mirror and lipstick and stuff. And I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing that you'd see from like the Human League or, you know, another like 80s synth band, but it just, it does not feel to me like in excess, at least as we later came to know them, right? If they did disown this, I'm just going to say, I, I, I don't feel like they were wrong in doing so. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I say I think it's untrue because very recently it became available on the band's official YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Now, until recently, this one and then the next song, Spy of Love, those two videos were not even available in the United States. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, they, they, they weren't even on that DVD they put out, were they? No, they're not on any of the DVDs that I have. I think they might have been on some of the early VHS tapes. It's definitely worth noting that like Duran Duran, NXS were one of the mm-hmm. first bands to really embrace the music video medium. I think part of that was due to geography. You know, let's face it, it's not always possible for a band in Australia to be appearing on television shows in England, in the United States, stuff like that. So having a prepackaged video that you can send to be on some of these shows, right? Like you mentioned Radio 1990 or, you know, the uh, Night Flight or any of that stuff. Right. And, I, you know, I think you just explained my mystery. I was wondering about at the start of the show. 
you know, where it came from and why there was a little 20 minute bio of the band. It's probably something they did to put out the, you know, air over here, you know, because they couldn't get here, like you pointed out. At least at first. Now, you know, they eventually did tour the U.S. Oh, to yeah. support this album. They opened for Adam Ant. Yeah, they were, they were at the Us Festival in 83, weren't they? Yes, they were. And as a matter of fact, they're going to be uh, re-releasing or perhaps releasing for the first time. I'm not sure which. Uh, the Us Festival 83 in October on vinyl. And I'm hoping they're going to release it in like a digital format too in October. Is there going to be video or are they ashamed of their clothes? Will you stop with the clothes? <laughs> Dude, okay. Let me say again, guys, if y'all happen to hear this, I, I love y'all to the moon and back. I really do. Don't don't get me wrong. Y'all were also one of the most fantastic live bands I ever saw. And y'all were dressed a lot cooler the night I saw you, too. Anyways, well, do you want to move on to the next song? Then? Yes, let's. we can. The next song is going to be Spy of Love. song like you said or uh, a second ago sensual sultry sound and this song has such a good build up to it they were kind of on the sky side of things in their early days and i think this song has a hint of that in it you can you can kind of feel it trickling through there a little bit with this song oh interesting so this song you know we talked about like the synth effects and stuff like that mm-hmm Mark Opitz has said in his book that basically the band just started jamming out for about 20 minutes on like improvised instruments. Screw it around. Yeah. Right. So he said, Tim played the fire extinguisher, the wall, a milk bottle, and a few other bits and pieces that were lying around. You can totally hear that. Like on the rhythmically clinking and oh, wow, that's interesting. Well, at the beginning, you can definitely hear the milk jug. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark says, I edited the best bits and it became track three on the album and again as we mentioned earlier the album title shabu shaba also came from the early versions of this song where they were improvising lyrics for those of you that don't know a lot of bands do that they they won't have a name for a song at the time so they'll just write something silly down you know as a placeholder for the tape they record the song on yeah yeah so this was another one of the videos that was filmed by scott hicks and this one, you want to talk about clothing. The band is all wearing goofy hats. And I think uh, one of them's barefoot. 
and they're playing with a dissembled piano and improvised instruments. Uh, we've got Michael wearing like a traditional like London fog type trench coat sitting in an old upholstered chair in front of the Shabu Shaba album cover. And then there's a few images of Andrew Ferris dressed as the man in the bowler hat with the apple from the Magritte painting, Son of Man. So that's like a recurring theme in the video as well. Uh, there's also tarot cards in the video, including the lovers. It's really kind of an interesting pastiche. This video was interesting to me because part of it, I was killing myself laughing at it. And then other parts was going, you know, that was a pretty cool idea right there. The disassembled piano and the tarot cards and all of that were pretty cool to me. But other elements of it, I was just like, what, what, who okayed this? And how are they not going, come on, come on, please, you know? Well, I'm of the impression that the three videos they shot with Scott Hicks were very much improvised. There really was not a whole lot of storyboarding and scripting and stuff like that beforehand. So a lot of what you see is very spur of the moment, I think. I mean, where are they going? How do you make a music video? What's in music videos? <laughs> no, because that's almost kind of what it seems like. Like they had no, they had no context to go with. Well, you know, it was a medium that was still being invented, I think, you know, it was it was still in the very early days. I mean, a lot of what we were still seeing in 82 was concert footage. I mean, if you think back to, well, you didn't have MTV in 82. Right. I think probably at least half of the videos I remember seeing were just concert footage. I mean, there was Meatloaf performing Paradise by the Dashboard Light. That was concert footage. There was a bunch of Sticks videos that was concert footage. You really we're only starting to see the seeds of, of the creativity of this short form music video. I think, I think a lot of record executives didn't really know what it was, you know, or what would be the advantage to spending money on this, you know? All right. Anything else you want to say about uh, spy of love? I think that sums it up with that one. Okay. So, so far the first three songs, I really like these three. They're fun. They're fun songs. Coming up next, we have a song called Soul Mistake. Trey, sole mistake. You know, I've got something written here on my notes, and it says, I found the song placement on side one odd. 
I'm going to go on record here and go ahead and say the second half of this album is so much better than the first side of this album. Really? Yes. This, I was, you know, I, I played this album a bunch of times over the course of the past week, and the, the first side of the record is just so unfocused to me. Hmm. And you get into starting about track five, it just really hits a pace, and it keeps it up to the end of the album. Now, see, that's interesting to me because I prefer side one to side two. The last five songs, well, accepting a Don't Change, I almost have this jangly, almost 60s feel to them, and they're all much, so much more upbeat. And I'm like, you know, the second half of this album just, it's so much better than the first side to me. Hmm. Again, I don't mean to sound like I'm bagging on the album, but it, it just, you know, somebody told me once, you don't truly love a band unless you can still love them, but critique them at the same time. Oh, I agree with you there. I, I absolutely agree. The flow of the songs on the first side of this album are just so off to me. Beyond, go ahead and say this. I, I struggled to get through the first five tracks on this album. Well, first four. And then from track five on, it just really, it just switches gears to me. And just the pace changes and it just gets so much better. Hmm. I can even remember thinking the first time I heard the cassette, it, it wasn't grabbing me. Because a lot of albums back then, the hit was the first or the second song on the album. And then so, you know, with this one, the one thing, which was their current popular song, was the first track. And it just started nosediving to me. I turned it over and was like, wow. Yeah. You know, this is this is sure different. I wonder if I'm the only one that thinks this. I don't know. I think you've spoken to more NXS fans in the past. You know, that's another weird thing with me. You, I don't know anybody else that loves this band, not in person. Obviously, there's you, but, mm -hmm. you know, over the course of my life, I never had any friends or anyone. They were always like, you like NXS? You know, what, oh, the, what the hell? They were huge when I was in high school. Me too. I mean, they were the bee's knees. and I, I mean, like everybody in my freshman class was into NXS. I mean, obviously, back then, I knew people who liked the songs, but I'm, you know, into the 90s, people were like, NXS, why do you like it? They don't fit the other stuff you like. And I'm like, actually, they do, but we're not going to have that argument and saying this to the person. But, uh, you know, so it's kind of interesting. I think that was one of the first things you and I ever talked about was NXS, wasn't it? I think it's very likely. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So what do you think of the song Soul Mistake, Trey? Not just the order, but the actual song. It's a cool song. Yeah. All the songs on this album have almost a sultry feel to them. Mm, good word. Well, they were a pub band. I was going to say they have such a smoky bar air to them to me. I could see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I don't know a lot about this specific song, but I know as I listen to the lyrics... She said this was a lesson in love. She said this was a love to end all loves. This soul never listens to me. This soul has a lot to learn. It's hard for me to listen to this and not think that he is singing about his relationship with Michelle Bennett, who was his first true love. Now, they broke up in 87, mm -hmm. and this album was 82. So maybe they weren't quite in that place yet where there was that contradiction. You know, when did they meet? Oh, that's a good question. It was, wasn't too long before this, was it? I'm not going to go on record with this, but I feel like it, it was in 81 or so when they became a thing. So maybe they weren't gelling well at first. They started dating in 1981, according to one source. No, I, I can trust my memory. 
But uh, maybe they just weren't gelling there at first. You know, we've all been in a relationship for the first few weeks. You're just kind of like, what are we doing? Then all of a sudden it just kind of, you know. You know, as, as the lead singer of a rock band, I'm sure that you are tempted. You know, I'm sure that being faithful to one person is is difficult for most people, not everybody. And I think, you know, maybe that might be part of what he's singing about here. You know, this soul never listens to me. Mm-hmm. And then the idea was, you know, she said, this is a lesson in love. And I mean, they stayed friends, you know, even after they split up. Yeah. He called her the night he passed away, didn't he? That's... Yeah, he did. He did. And, and he left her a message because he couldn't reach her. Anything else on soul mistake? I think that about covers her. All right. I shouldn't say that again, should I? Let's move on to the next track. High five is here comes. saying her this is where the album really picks up for me especially the guitar playing just really takes a different feel to it and the last song on the first side the album just picks up to me i guess if you're listening to the cd you wouldn't be thinking of side one or side two like we are us old folks who had cassettes and records back in the day but uh you know the guitar playing on this on this song just really takes a distinct turn from the first songs on the album to me it has almost a 60s jangly vibe to it to me what do you think of that me seeing that i don't disagree i i i tend to get more fixated on things like the lyrics and stuff but i think you may be onto something there even the production takes a different feel from this point on to me the drums have a deeper thud to them mm-hmm. everything just it's, it's it's like something changed in there hmm I guess I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again. There's actually another version of this song called Here Comes Two. Mm-hmm. That's more of a slower ballad. I like that one better. This this particular version, I don't care for as much. Why not? I, I, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't have the kind of moodiness that I think that Here Comes Two has. I think here it's a little too... A little too fast and a little too poppy, maybe. I mean, I know that seems weird that I'm saying in excess is too poppy because they were kind of a pop band, but I don't know. It, it here comes two, I just think has a, a better flow to it and a better vibe. There's one lyric in this song, here comes God's top 10. Mm-hmm. And they would later reference this in their song called God's top 10 in 2005. And that was when J.D. Fortune was on vocals. You know, I have never heard that album. No? Never heard it. Mm. So now we're going to flip the album over, or uh, Trey, flip your cassette tape over. All right. All right. And the first track on side two is Black and White.
and again, this is uh, just uh, keeps going right here for me. They just just really hitting a stride. Great song. Yeah, this one this one is catchy. It's got all the elements of just what you think of classic and in, in excess in it to me. It's just they're just going full bore. I really like John's drums on this one. Mm -hmm. The the rhythm and the drums really I think carry the song to a higher level. You know, a lot of their songs on on this album and then on the the next album, The Swing, a lot of them were written while they were on tour. I mean, basically they were touring and then they would go into the studio and they record like after after their live performances. If you listen to the lyrics, it's hard not to think that this is about touring. There's nothing to stop the thief of time, hmm? stealing the hours that keep you away. My life is out the door and constantly moving, you know, as they would have been when they were touring. So. Again, I don't know. I, I wasn't in Michael's head, but that would be my first impression that this song might be about. Had they left Australia yet at this point? No, uh, they had not, but they would have been touring all over Australia. Right, I was going to say, they must have been having a blast. Just Australia is such a big place from what I understand, and it must have been amazing to them to you know travel hours to faraway cities and see all the things they were seeing well you know i i think a lot of musicians will tell you when you tour you don't really get to see the city i mean you you're, you're performing and then you're in a hotel room or you're in the the tour bus and then the next day you're in another city i mean otherwise you're, you're really just seeing the four walls but you got to look at it you know with a country like australia that is so huge and you have to travel so far from place to place that they were definitely getting to look out the windows and see what they're, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's a story. There was a story that at one point when they were touring, and this was before they really started to catch on. So this was prior to this album, but they were touring and they were driving. They, they went across the interior of the country. And I guess they had stopped in the middle of the night and, and pitched a tent. Kirk was driving. They'd stopped and, and pitched their tent and stuff. And they woke up in the morning and realized that they had pitched their tent next to a kangaroo carcass. Oh. <laughs> that must have smelled very nice. Oh, uh, yeah. I can't imagine they smell much better themselves than being <laughs> on the floor not having a hotel room. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, what they depict in that uh, In Excess Never Tear Us Apart, you know, we got all, all five band members because Michael was on TV. But the other five kind of being jammed in one, you know, mm -hmm. hotel room that that's pretty accurate from when they were first starting out. Yeah. You know, obviously that changed by the time they got to X, they had their own private jet, you know, so they really, really came a long way in a, a very short period of time. It was so weird seeing them get so big because up to that point, well, around here where I was, they were kind of, a you know, nobody knew who they were. You know, then one day I'm at school and the little blonde girl's going, do you like NXS? Can you make me a, can you record that album for me? And I'm. Uh, is there anything else about black and white? Nope, I think we should move on to the next track, which is track seven, Golden Playpen.
and again, I, you know, I feel like I repeat myself too much doing this, but those guitars on this one, those jangly, jangly guitars, so awesome to me. Just I think the guitars on this one are good. This for me is the weak track of the album. You think so? I, you know, I, I, the lyrics are silly. They are. I was going to say the title of the song is just silly to me, but it's the music is great. You know what I finally realized over the weekend as I was listening to it for maybe the, you know, 300th time. If Golden Playpen is the name of a bar, then the song makes perfect sense that they got kicked out of a bar, right? I'm drunk, can't see my glass, not worried, chair dancing man, tossed out of the Golden Playpen. If Golden Playpen is a bar, it makes perfect sense. Otherwise, it's stupid. <laughs> You know, I've got I've got in my notes here underneath this song, I've got things to come. I definitely feel like you got a small glimpse of where they were headed, you know, sort of maybe more towards listen like these with this song, but just the those guitars, man. You know, interestingly, this is one of the I think probably the only song on the album that was written by Michael with Kirk Pengilly. Really? Yes. So that must be why with like the strong guitars and stuff mm -hmm. yeah that might be i think something we need to note here that we haven't said yet is these guys were such or are such fantastic musicians i mean these people could really play they weren't a couple of punk rock guys that got in a room and knew three chords these these guys were pretty darn badass musicians yeah at least they got to be you know i'm sure starting off not so much i mean i know there's a a, a running gag with the band that the reason they chose Gary for bass is because he had a van. But Gary eventually got to be one of the definitive rock and roll funk bassists. And, you know, him and John together, you know, the, the way they start playing off of each other is amazing. They have, I think, one of the strongest rhythm sections of any band, any band. Oh, sure. Maybe not in history, but definitely in the 80s and 90s for sure. He has such a smooth playing style. He really does. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Their bass lines are always just perfectly suited to the song. And it always made me feel like they put in so much thought to their music when they were sitting down and arranging it and writing it. You know, everybody knew their place and found their place in the song. And they, they didn't mess with things too much like some bands tend to do. Nobody in this band was ever showboating either. Nobody was playing some ridiculous solo or, you know, anything like that. They were Well, you know, I think the other five would have called him out on it if they had, you know. <laughs> now, I've, I've, I've always understood Andrew was the main driving force in the writing of the music for NXS. For most of the songs, yes. Mm -hmm. And again, this was kind of one of the one right. of the exceptions. Yeah. It surprised me when you mentioned that Kirk was I was like, wow, really? Yeah. All right, the next song on the album, speaking of Andrew Ferris, this was written by Andrew and Michael. It's called Jan's Song. Right. She shouts, I'll make it 
like you just said a golden playpen i think this is the weakest point on side two of the lp really mm -hmm. you know mark opitz has said in interviews that of all of michael hutchinson's performances this song was his favorite really yes who was this written about you know that's interesting so andrew ferris had said in an interview we were still in the cold war era and there was a girl in eastern europe i'd seen on a news clip or it could have been a newspaper, a clipping of a woman wanting freedom from the Eastern Bloc communist countries. Wow. I looked at that and felt some empathy for her wanting to be heard and seen and having an opinion about things. And that's where I got the idea. I suppose she's a fictitious character. I don't know her personally. Wow, that almost completely changes my perspective on this song. That is damn interesting. Wow. Yeah, so like if you listen, Jan's friends, they're marching in the streets. Yeah. The anger in their hearts provides a steady beat on and on and on. You know, thinking about 82 and where things were politically in 82, right? right? This isn't the first time that that theme has come up in our show. No, and it's not going to be the last. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is prior, what, Berlin Wall fell in 89. So, you know, the, the Eastern Bloc communist countries were still still a thing and there was still you know that cold war and and it was an interesting time to to come of age for sure had they watched the road warrior oh i'm sure they did they they're australian 82. yeah they're australian of course well, they did they actually came out in 81 over there but that was a big movie in 82 one of my favorite movies non-stop action it's just nothing but destruction so what does that have to do with jan song just the nuclear war theme, end of the world stuff, you know, Iron Curtain, all that. That's all referenced in that movie. If you, if you pay close attention, it is. Okay. And that was a, a very real fear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that it even got to them, you know, because they're sort of the loners of the world sort of over there off, you know, by themselves. Okay. So we're going to move on or are we going to? I think we should. All right. <laughs> Up next is track nine, Old World, New World.
you know, this is yet another song on this album that has such a sultry, sexy feel to it. Okay. You know, the layering of the music, the keyboards and the guitars and just, it's, it's you know, it, it's definitely got that sexy vibe to it to me. Well, the songwriting was credited to Michael Hutchins and John Ferris. Oh, wow. And John was very much into like new agey, like religion type stuff. So as you listen to it, that really comes through, doesn't it? Oh, to follow your mighty path. Sure. We're learning the primitive rites. The lyrics almost are distinctly different than anything else on the rest of the album. Yeah, it, it definitely very, you know, I almost want to say pagan. Yeah, I, I could I could see that. And at the very end, it's interesting. If you listen very closely, Michael's doing some call outs. Pan, Shambhala, Judaism, Hindu, Christianity, Mastic, Buddhism, Atman of Vedas, Sun Ra, astrology, voodoo, the great dream time. This is probably the most metaphysical of all of the In Excess songs. Yeah, by far. For, with a possible exception of maybe Freedom Deep, which would come out much later. I think that one's got a very kind of metaphysical vibe to it too. But uh, now you're a big fan of The Cure. Who? You are a big fan of The what Cure. Band? The Cure? Can you see my hair right now? <laughs> You've got your Robert Smith air yeah, going on. Quite fun with the cure. I always thought the ending of this song reminded me of A Forest by The Cure. I could kind of see that, actually, now that you point that out. We're coming to the end of the album. Right. So the last track is, I think, for you and me both, one of our favorites. I think for any, anyone who lo loves the band like we do, this is one of their favorite songs. This is, you know, definitely one of their standout tracks. We're talking, of course, about Don't Change. Yeah. has said in interviews this is one of the songs that has never died with an excess right and you and i had talked about in episode one that this is traditionally 
the song that the boys would do to close their concerts. Yep. This is, you know, I keep saying this album, they were finding their sound. And this has got all the hallmarks of what NXS became in it. And one song, this is, you know, mm -hmm. you could sum up their entire catalog with this track. Probably for at least half of the fans that I've spoken with, this is probably their favorite NXS song of all time. The writing credit is shared among all six band members, as well it should be. Mm -hmm. So again, going back to Mark Opitz. So he has a really good memoir it's called sophistopunk and he talks not just about nxs but he talks about some of the other bands that he's worked with and he explains that while he was mixing this song there was this kind of convergence at the end between andrew synth and the guitars where it made a very interesting sound he grabbed kirk because kirk was the only person that was still left in the studio he was still packing up his gear and he had Kirk go back into the recording booth and record that don't change at the very end. Cause Kirk is a tenor. Yeah. Whereas Michael, I think is what he'd be considered a baritone anyway, but that at the very end where it's like, don't yeah. change. And that's where that came from. So that was just kind of improvised at the last minute that Mark Opitz suggested it. And it definitely fits with the song. Everything about this song is just spot on. That oh yeah, the sustained guitar, the keyboards, Michael singing, the lyrics, everything about this song is just amazing. I can still remember the first time hearing the song and being like, "Wow, that absolutely just rules." And this is one of the songs that always puts me in a good mood. It's a short list, but this is one of those that I put on, and it just puts me in a great mood every time. Within the past two weeks, it's been coming on the Muzak at the Walmart I work in. Really? Um, you know, I know. The first time I noticed it, I was like... I can't even envision that. You know, of all the NXX songs for them to be playing, this is odd, but it, it's I'm great with it. Yeah. You would think it would be uh, Need You Tonight or something, but instead it's this one. Interesting. Do you start singing along as you're stocking the shelves? Yeah, and people are going, what the hell? Why are you singing this weird song? <laughs> Well, uh, so now let's talk about the video. So this was the third of those videos directed by Scott Hicks. And it was shot in an airplane hangar with no script. Again, you know, they had other plans, uh, but because of weather, they couldn't do what they were going to do. So Tim Ferriss has said, we made it up as we went along. Was, uh, was, was Kirk single at the time? Oh, that's a good question. Why do you ask? Because, yeah. because, <laughs> because of his hair. <laughs> Yeah, you know, all the boys really kind of had distinctive looks. I think Gary's hair is looking amazing in this video. I kind of wish he hadn't gotten away from that. And then I thought you were going to mention Kirk's socks. Oh, so we'll get has... to that. We're, we're going to get to the rest of the poor fashion corpses <laughs> in this. You know, I, I, just, I can't leave it alone. Well, so he's got those bright yellow slouchy socks and he's got his jeans tucked into his socks. And I feel a little bit vindicated because... I used to get a lot of grief from some of my friends because in the 80s, I also wore slouchy socks over my jeans. All the girls around here were doing that. I wouldn't have, on a guy, yeah, that looks pretty funny, but I, I wouldn't have thought anything of you doing it. Okay, well, I got a lot of grief from some of my friends about it. Interesting, the differences in where we grew up. Yeah. Which one of them has on, like, the overalls? The coverall, that's Tim. 
Tim, Tim's got the big cover all going on there where hey, he Louis, looks you work, working on your car and they said, let's shoot a video and you just ran up. Or maybe he grabbed something from the airplane hangar. Oh, Who knows? Well, yeah, that's, a, that's a definite possibility there. Wow. And then, of course, then we have John in his magenta socks again. This is the second video on this album where he's got those magenta socks. Do I have a weird obsession with socks? I'm you starting seem to. to. You've, you've mentioned their <laughs> socks quite a lot in this episode, and that's uh, <laughs> you have a foot fetish or what's going on there? Let, let's, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm actually blushing a little bit right now. I know our listeners can't see that. I guess I never really realized I must really obsess with socks. I don't think I'd ever even notice the socks until we were getting ready for this and you pointed that out. And I was like, socks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing at the mullets and the and the coveralls and the horrible boots. And you're look at the socks though. Oh, I, I, no, I'm sorry. Those mullets are beautiful. They they should not change their hair. Don't change in excess right the hair is just so beautiful and you know you can tell that the video is improvised because there's that one point where the boys are just kind of running back and forth like they have no idea where they're supposed to go i think they were just having a good time and got into it with that just kind of like we're on stage yeah and you know tim's being goofy and making some goofy faces as he's mm -hmm. playing and then towards the end we got tim throwing his guitar on the ground and then as they're taken off in the truck, Gary throws his bass off the back of the truck. Oh my gosh, those poor instruments. Were these filmed before the album released? That's a good question. No, I don't I don't think they were. They must well, they must have gotten advanced and advanced for new gear and were saying <laughs> bye to the old stuff. They all have to ask, what in the world was the deal with the truck? Again, that was like totally improvised, right? I mean, they they what they drive on. Except for John. John's already at his drum kit. And then they drive off. I, you know, I don't think I ever saw this video until later in the 80s, probably when Kick took off and MTV, you know, they would all of a sudden start playing a band's back catalog. Yeah. And I saw it and was like, what, what on earth? I think this was the video that that cemented my crush on John. I, I just—he's just so adorable in this video. Was it the socks, or you know, socks—he's chewing on a piece of gum and he's rolling his eyes in this adorable way that he does. And you know, I have to sit here. I'm sitting here thinking if anybody from the band ever hears this, I wonder what they're going to think of this part. They're going to call it again. Listen to these two <laughs> silly people in America making fun of our socks here. Well, and you know, I'm going to get in a little bit of trouble because I—I I don't personally know the band, but. I know I know some people that know the band. Right. I mean, exactly. That's what I was thinking. I love their socks. I'm not ripping on their socks. Yeah, you know, it's like I, there's no way they don't look back at some of this stuff and go, God, what on earth were we thinking? And yet some of their some of their choices I think were like really, really good. I mean, uh, Gary with the leather jacket and the, the bandana around his neck and the, the kind of longish hair. Mm -hmm. I think that's the longest Gary's hair has ever been. And he's looking kind of tasty there. I think, you, you know, like you noted earlier in the show, they probably didn't have a whole lot of money at this point and just, yeah. you know, were buying their clothes in thrift stores. Who knows? Or yeah. came on, like I said. <laughs> 
And, you know, I saw them in 88 on a kick tour. It was actually on September 11th, 1988, which is this coming is it Saturday. Oh, wow. And they at this point, I didn't know this was their permanent show closer, but they, they did their main set and they left the stage and the lights went out. You know, the cymbal started and the keyboard line started and they came back out and played this and the crowd went absolutely bonkers and they extended it a little. I think it went on for about six minutes live and the ending just kind of dragged out longer than it normally does. Here you go. Prolonging um, the magic. I remember the song ending and Michael just standing there going and going, thank you, you good night. And they all took off. Huh. I'm so jealous that you got to see them live. It was one of the best shows I've ever seen. They were fantastic. Oh, that's so cool. I was going to say they were just right. They weren't too loud, but they were loud enough and they played the right mix of their back catalog and current songs. It was excellent. Cool. Well, so October 1982, right? This album was released and we're excited because they just announced they're going to do a 40th anniversary deluxe digital box set featuring 15 songs on streaming services for the first time. So the 10 album tracks and then probably five of the B-sides. I think I counted seven B-sides. So they're probably going to do five of them. Well, if I've ever even heard the B-sides, so this would be cool to check out. They're also going to do two very special vinyl releases. Limited, it says very limited, clear vinyl edition exclusively via NXS.com along with a vintage Shabu Shaba shirt with the album cover. I want one of the shirts. I've pre-ordered mine. And then also the band's Live at the Us Festival, which you mentioned earlier, is also going to be released in October. Yes. So it says the nine-track live set was recorded on May 28th, 1983. As you know, this was the second year of the Us Festival, and it was created by Steve Wozniak. I think the band's probably first big crowd, right? Like uh, 300,000 people per day at the festival. Was there a bootleg of this going around back in the day? Oh, I'm sure there is. It aired on TV, didn't it? I've seen some of the songs on TV, like on the Access Network, but I haven't seen the entire performance. I'm pretty sure I had a bootleg of the show back in the late 80s. I think you could buy the whole Lust Festival on pay-per-view, couldn't you? Or it aired on satellite or MTV aired it or. It's very possible. We'll have to look that up. and. Well, so now in October, you can buy the official version and you don't have to settle for your bootleg anymore. Well, at least in the audio. Yeah. So any parting thoughts on Shabu Shabatre? You know, I don't think I'd listen to this album and probably... 30 years. Wow. Not from front to start like that. And it was really cool. I listened to it several times on my way home from work over the course of the past week. It was really cool to look, you know, hear it front to start again and just think back on my first time hearing it. And, you know, like I said, I think I said this several times in the show, hearing a band finding their, finding their sound, finding their groove and just, you know, getting it out there. It's, it's a great album. Now, at this point, I should probably give a shout out to our friends at the podcast In Excess Access All Areas with Hayden and B. If you're an In Excess lover, 
That is the definitive podcast. They've been at it for about two and a half years now. And they've actually interviewed Mark Opitz and they've interviewed a few of the band members and stuff. And they've got some really cool stuff there. You happy to give them a plug? Hello, this is Andrew Farris. And this is Michael Hutchins. And have a great weekend. I mean, really enjoy yourself out there. You know? But please don't drink and drive. All right. So, Trey, uh, two weeks. Are we moving on to 1983? Is that the plan? Yes, step forward, you know, a little bit further into the 80s. And new wave music had gotten a firmer grip on the American airwaves. And also some alternative rock was beginning to seep into things. So I've started putting together my playlist. I know you're working on yours. I am. I'm having a hard time with it because there's so much and I'm trying to just, you know, get it right. Well, and I'm waiting to see what you've got because I'm trying to whittle mine down and I suspect you and I would have picked a lot of the same ones. But I have one or two surprises on my list too. I think I've got a few that are going to, you know, surprise you too. Fantastic. All right. So that'll be out in two weeks. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Let me also say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has listened to us so far. This is done far better than I was expecting it to. So thanks everybody out there. And thank you to those of you that are sharing and and promoting. We really appreciate you. So we'll be back in two weeks, 1983. Bye everybody. 